0: Earlier, looking at the story of the woman at the well, um, I don't know about you, but I've heard this passage preached on a lot of times, John chapter four. I've heard a lot of um, talks given about the woman at the well, um, but what I haven't heard much of is the second half of the chapter. So I think often when people preach on John chapter four, um, they do an amazing job on talking about that first half of the chapter, the bit we uh, read together earlier, but perhaps they kind of stop there halfway through and then you don't hear quite so much about the second half. Um, And when I was preparing for today, I read the whole thing in its entirety, like I said earlier, and uh, when I read that whole chapter, it really struck me, actually, how if you kind of chop it off halfway, you really miss out on some of the kind of power and punch in the story as well. So um, without further ado, I want us to launch straight in where we left off. Um, So we're going to pick up now verse 28. I read a a little bit of this, but I just want to backtrack a couple of verses. It says this, Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought in food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labour. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came him, <coughs> they urged him to stay with them and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, "For ourselves and we know this man really is the saviour of the world. Um, Now my natural comfort zone when it comes to giving a talk is to cover topics a little bit like what we did earlier. So to talk about um, understanding in my own life, um, that I find it a lot easier to talk about some of those things, dealing dealing with some of those topics. And you know, I'm utterly passionate about that and in my own life, I I kind of keep that as one of my constant prayers too. Father, reveal more of your love for me because I really want to be transformed by this love that Jesus has. Um, But like I said before, it's undeniable when you read John chapter 4 in its entirety that the story does not end there because there's this transition now where John moves from this story of this personal encounter with this woman at the well, this woman and Jesus, into then the fruit of that encounter, which is many other people coming to know Jesus too. Um, And in many ways, we should not be surprised by this, because I think when you experience Jesus' love in a powerful way like that, you cannot help but keep it to yourself. Um, I mean, you can't help but not keep it to yourself. There'd be something seriously wrong if you couldn't help keeping it to yourself. Whoa, good job I caught that one. Um, I wanted to tell you about a lady in our church uh, called Lydia. She and her husband, Rich, uh, joined us probably about two years ago, um, and they quickly joined our worship team when they arrived at the church. Um, And the way they started leading us in worship was like nothing I'd really ever experienced before. And I'm not going to lie to you, at first I found it deeply, deeply uncomfortable. Um, so one of the things that they would do is they would, they'd start sort of singing out randomly during different songs. they kind of go off piece and they'd sing out these various different things like, you know, God's smiling over us and all of this sort of stuff. And I'd be like, that's a bit weird. Just stick to the song. Um, and they would address prayers to God. And when they would address their prayers to God, they'd start their prayers like this. Daddy God, we just pray. And when they said this Daddy God thing, it honestly sent shudders through me. So every time I said daddy, I was like, that's just horrible. Um, and I sort of, in my pride, sort of went away thinking, well, it's obviously hugely disrespectful. They're obviously just hugely disrespectful and don't have respect for who God is. And so much so that I remember talking to Pete, who leads our church, about it and saying, um, Pete, you know, I just want to bring something to your attention. Um, I'm finding that really uncomfortable, actually, when Richard and Lydia talk to God as daddy not sure that it's that appropriate and I I just feel a bit funny about it and Pete said to me um I kind of know what you mean it makes me feel a bit funny too sometimes but I wonder actually whether we've got something to learn from them and I thought yeah good one I don't think we have um but fine I sort of left it and sort of gritted my teeth and just would kind of try to engage a little bit more in worship anyway over the months gradually I felt like God started to soften my heart a little bit more Um, And as we were worshipping, I started to really begin to enter in a little bit more as they were worshipping. And one of the things I began to notice was, it wasn't just that they would address their prayers to Daddy God, it wasn't just that they would sing these sort of songs out about how God loves us and how he's smiling over us and all these sorts of things. But when they were worshipping, they were just beaming. They looked absolutely over the moon, like there was nowhere else they'd rather be, grinning from ear to ear, you know, dancing around a bit. They looked like they were having the time of their lives. And I was thinking, sometimes I'm a bit bored in worship, if I'm really honest. What, where do they get this from? Um, so anyway, this kind of started this journey for me, and I slowly began to realise, do you know what, I wonder whether this is partly, Pete was right, and this is partly my problem, not their problem. And I kind of started processing a little bit of that, and one of the things that sort of came to my mind was, um, the way I relate to God, I mentioned this in our seminar earlier, um, So often the way I've related to God in the past is a little bit more like a boss or an employer. And a kind boss, a kind employer, but nevertheless, like a boss or an employer. And I found it hard to relate to him in, in that concept as a loving father, a loving daddy. So to hear someone call God daddy, I just had no frame of reference for that. I did not relate to God like that. Like that. Um, And then people started to sort of mention things about that biblically, about how Jesus referred to um, the Father as Abba, literally meaning Daddy, and he taught us how to pray like that as well. So there's a real biblical foundation for it too, and I thought, okay, well maybe I need to get to grips with this a bit more. And gradually I started to get to know Lydia and this lady a little bit more. And, and I realised it wasn't just on the stage, it wasn't just when she was worshipping that she was full of this joy, just in life, generally. She was just like brimming over with joy, just this warmth, this love spilling out of her whenever I was around her. So eventually I sort of plucked up the courage and sent her this slightly sad little email saying, um, you know, I just struggled with a while for a while with this and then um, you just seem to really understand that God loves you. And sometimes I have a hard time understanding that God loves me. So could we meet up and go for a coffee and talk about it? Um, so the two of us um, met up and had this coffee and had the most I had the most amazing conversation with her. And she shared with me some of her story about how she kind of came to that point of understanding that God loved her. Um, And I'd love to go into all of it, but I did feel, actually, that it's her story to tell, not mine. But um, suffice to say, she came from a really, really messy, messy background, really painful upbringing. And she became a Christian in her late teenage years. Um, And when she became a Christian, one of the things that happened to her, she had this powerful encounter where she met with Jesus. And she just felt like she knew that she needed God to pour in the Father's love into her heart. She knew she needed to know more of the Father's love. So determined to do that, what she did was every day for two years, she took a sleeping bag, she snuck into her church at night, um, and she lay down in the sleeping bag, she put a worship CD, CD on, and she stayed there all night, sleeping a little bit, waking a little bit, and just asking God to fill her with his love. She did that every day for two years. I was like, I would have given up after about two days. Um, she did it every day for two years, but do you know what, when she told me that, I thought, I can absolutely tell. I can absolutely tell. I can tell when she's worshipping. I can just tell when she's interacting with people in her everyday life um, that she's spent that much time soaking in God's presence, receiving his love. And you know, recently she and her husband have actually moved out to Mombasa in Kenya to work with children and vulnerable women who've been exploited by the sex industry because they desperately want those women and children to know the love of Jesus that they've encountered so powerfully in their own lives. Rich, her husband, has an amazing story too. Um, And you know, a few of us on our staff team, we Skyped them a couple of months ago. They'd been out in Mombasa for about a month at the time. And Rich made this comment on Skype where he just said, You know, wherever we go, people love Lydia. They just want to be around Lydia the whole time. And I, I just got thinking to myself, again, do you know, that doesn't surprise me in the slightest. And yes, because she's an amazing woman and she's got these wonderful personality traits just in and of herself, but so much more than that. People are attracted to the love of Jesus in her. This is a woman who is soaked in Jesus's love, and people are attracted to it even if they don't quite know what it is. It's utterly infectious and contagious. And my point is this when you encounter the love of God like that, you cannot contain it. It spills out of you in your smiles, in your joy, in the way you interact with people, in the way you love people, and in the stories that you tell people. And that is what is going on here in this passage. The woman at the well has encountered Jesus, and she cannot help talking about. It just spills out of her. And you need to remember that this is a woman (coughs) who previously has avoided people like the plague. She didn't want to be near anybody, telling them anything about herself. And now she can't help herself. She's going around telling anybody that wants to listen about her experience with Jesus. You know, for some of us, maybe we really are kind of at that early point in the story. We relate to where the woman was at that first part in the story. And we just desperately need encounter God's love again today. We know that we need to soak in his love again today. You know, maybe that's for the first time, maybe that's for the hundredth time, but we know that that's where we're at. But for others of us, we know already that we've encountered his love, and whilst there's always more for us to experience, and we want to continually be opening ourselves to that, we also know that we've got a story to tell. Jesus said this to his disciples, freely you've received, now freely give. And if that's what he's asking of us, then the question for us becomes this. Who am I giving away Jesus to? Who am I giving Jesus away to? Who am I sharing him with? And how do I do it? Um, and if you're anything like me, maybe when you hear someone ask a question like that, you take a giant gulp. Because you feel pretty useless at sharing Jesus with people. I... Totally do, so if you feel like that, you are absolutely in good company. Um, and, but I think a bit of good news for us on this is that this second part of John chapter 4 I feel is full of absolute gold when it comes to looking at how do we share Jesus with people. Um, and I think when you read the passage, it's almost as though there are these series of movements that happen throughout the passage as Jesus is shared and people begin to take steps towards him. And I'm not suggesting for one second that this is a formula that we all need to master so that we can go out after here and walk ourselves through these different movements. Um, But I do think that there's absolute gold contained in some of these movements, so I want us to home in on them a little bit. And the first movement that I want to home in on is this. The woman tells her story. She says to those in her community, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And Peter, who is my favorite disciple, mainly because he got stuff wrong the whole time, so I relate to him, he writes this later in the New Testament. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Now, if I was to go around the room now and ask you, what's your story? How would you answer? How has Jesus changed your life? What does Jesus mean to you? You know, if someone was to ask you, why do you belong to a church, or why do you believe what you believe, how would you answer? You know, for the woman, as I said, it was, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. In other words, I want you to meet this guy, Jesus, who knew all this stuff about me without me even telling him, and more than that, he accepted me, he knew everything that I'd done wrong, but he's met me with that kind of love and acceptance that I've never experienced before. I want us to ask ourselves, if someone was to ask us what we believed and why we believed it, what would we share of ourselves with them? What would we share of ourselves with them? You know, I've had the privilege of being involved with some of the Alpha courses that we run as a church for those who are exploring um, faith, and um, questions of faith, and I absolutely love them. And So I'm about to say something, I don't want you to get me wrong, I love Alpha courses, I think they are absolutely unbelievable. What is becoming increasingly interesting for me is that sometimes I think that the questions we are trying to answer for people are not the questions that people are asking. So we tackle these different topics like why did Jesus die, what's the historical evidence for the resurrection, and those are amazing things, they are important things, they are valuable things. I don't think they're often the questions that people are coming with. You know, in my experience of Alpha, when people come to faith during Alpha, sometimes it's because they're won over by these intellectual arguments. Sometimes it's because they're won over by the evidence. So we should absolutely keep preaching those sorts of things. I'm not suggesting that we don't. But for many, it isn't that that leads them to Jesus. Instead, they hear or they see in the flesh the story of a transformed and changed life. Or their impact is. the love of God that they see in somebody else, and they want to know more. They're intrigued. And that's because somebody somewhere in their group or throughout the course has had the guts to share something of their own story. Now for you, what is it that you, unique to you, have to share? Um, I think the other thing that you learn from this sort of first movement that the woman makes is that she doesn't presume to have all the answers. Either. She instead she asks a question: Could this be the Messiah? Question mark. Um, broadly speaking, and I know that this is a huge sweeping generalization, so forgive me for that. Um, but I think there is a bit of truth in it as well. I think the church is increasingly um, finding itself with this reputation that it doesn't want as intolerant. As bigoted, as judgmental. Now, that's not true across the board. There are sort of corners of the church where, in their communities, people love the church and are grateful for the church and the existence of it. But I think across the board, sometimes that is true at the moment. And I was kind of asking the question you know, what is that about? Why is that? And I certainly think it's nothing to do with the truth of the message we carry. As if Jesus' encounter with this woman is anything to go by, he couldn't have been less judgmental or less intolerant. you know. In fact, Jesus went around to the Pharisees the whole time, warning them about being like that with people. So it hasn't come from Jesus. So where has that reputation come from? Could it be that it's come from the way we deliver the message that we carry? That we fail to pay attention to people like this woman and how they've done it? She shared her story, and then she asked a in other words, she said, here's my story. What do you think? Back to Alpha for a moment. The best Alpha groups that I have ever been a part of are the ones where the leaders of the groups aren't know-it-alls. They don't feel the pressure to answer every single question and to get it absolutely 100% right. But instead, when someone asks a question to them, they throw it open to the group and they say, well, what does everybody else think? And maybe they weave in little bits of their own stories along the way. You know, this is the woman's approach. And the fruit of this is seen in the very next verse. If you read it, it says, John writes about this second movement now that's about to happen. He writes that the people she was talking to came out of the town and made their way towards him. How beautiful is that? As a result of this woman's story, this woman who was an outcome, Deeply disrespected by the people in her community. As a result of her story, her transformed life, and the humility with which she told it, the people begin to make their way towards Jesus. And I want to ask us this as well are we on the lookout for those in our circles, those in our communities who perhaps haven't made their commitment to Jesus yet, but they are making their way? on the lookout for those kinds of people. Um, about a year and a half ago, our church staff team, we were based in this uh, floor of office space, which is about 10 minutes up the road from King's Cross, and we'd miraculously been given this office space rent-free, so uh, which is kind of unheard of in areas like King's Cross in central London. But we'd been working at this office rent-free uh, for about a year, and we'd... It was kind of one floor of office space, and we would sort of roughly filled it, but it was perfect. It was absolutely perfect for what we needed. But the deal was, we could be there rent free, but at any moment the landlord could give us a day's notice, and we had to get we had to get out of there. So you can imagine, every day it was like, is this the day? Are we going to be out today? Um, but gradually, a year went past. We were still there, and eventually, we got the phone call from the landlord, and I was thinking, oh god. Um, thankfully, he didn't give us a day. He gave us a month, but he said, you know. need to move on in a month's time. So we were thinking, what on earth are we going to do? We don't have any money to rent somewhere else. I don't know where we're going to go to. Um, And then amazingly, a few days later, we had this random phone call um, from a lady in Singapore. Um, (laughs) I know, totally bizarre. You can't make this stuff up. Um, And it just so happened that she owned another office in Kings Cross. She owned seven floors of office and she said that the building was currently vacant and she was looking for charities, um, at different charities around Kings Cross to fill it whilst it was vacant so that, I don't know what it is, it's something so that you don't have to pay rates. I have not got a business mind, so I don't know how it works. Anyway, she was looking for charities to fill the space. So she phoned us up and she said, I just came across your website, wondered would you be interested in some office space in this building? We were like, oh, we'll just think about it for a minute. Okay. Um, But in all seriousness, we kind of thought, no, we need to think about this. I mean, it does sound like God, um, but we better sort of have a bit of a think about it. Um, And the deal was, we went to visit the building, and the thing that was most miraculous about it was, we didn't know this at the time when she offered it, but the building is three doors up the road from the church where we are meeting at the moment. So it was this unbelievable, miraculous Provision, But when we went to see the building, it was pretty run down. And they said to us, we're only really interested in you coming and moving in here if you want two floors of office space. And these are like massive floors. It's probably, the floors are probably like this, the size of this room doubled. And she, they offered us two floors of those, so and we were thinking, what are we going to, fill with two floors of office space. This could actually end up as more of a burden, don't really know. Anyway, we felt that God was saying, just take the space and I will fill it. Um, so in the end, we decided we took the space, we moved in, we moved our office in, and we fast forwarded a year later, and um, we had, we've got Islington Food Bank, now operate out of there. We've got a charity called Mums the Word, who's, uh, which is a clothes bank, which gives away clothes to vulnerable mums, people that can't afford clothes for their kids. And we run a homeless brunch out of there. We've got a pregnancy crisis group who run um, sessions with their clients out of there. It's amazing, all the stuff that's bubbling up. We've also obviously got our office in there and all our church activities run out of there. So all of this stuff has started to happen. And then we had this one bit of space that was still vacant. It was a chunk on the first floor. We didn't know what to do with it. It was in this total state of disrepair. Until this couple in our congregation, a couple called Simon and Laura, approached (coughs) us and said, we think we've got a vision for that space. Um, And basically the two of them were filmmakers and um, they worked kind of on a freelance basis, so they spent a lot of their time working alone and knew what it was like to work from home and be quite lonely when they were doing so. Um, and they just had this vision, what if we kitted out this place and we created this space where people that work by themselves a lot of the time could all come together and spend the day working together rather than working at home alone. And more than that, they wanted to be a, wanted it to be a space where people who, from the church, could bring friends into easily, people that were making their way towards Jesus, but perhaps didn't yet know him. But it would be a really easy thing to invite a friend to come and on to. And the other part of the vision, which I absolutely love, they wanted to kit out the whole place with furniture that they found that had been thrown away on the streets of King's Cross. So they would wander around King's Cross, picking up these grotty chairs with sort of beer cans on them and cigarette stumped out on them, and they'd take them back into the office, they'd refurb them, they'd make them Um, And that would be what they would build this office space from. So they went ahead, they did it, they built, I cannot describe to you, I wish I'd brought some pictures actually. They built the most beautiful, beautiful workspace. And it's just been an amazing thing to see they filled that space. But what has been so exciting about it is it has truly become a place where people who are making their way towards Jesus can find home and can be accepted. And they're probably about sort of six months into the space now. And what's really interesting to see is that something of the generosity of Simon and Laura who set up the space, something of the care and the interest that they show for broken bits of furniture, as well as for the people that come and work there, something of the way that they share their lives so openly with the people who walk through the door has absolutely begun to to rub off. So much so that I bump into people in the kitchen and I think, you're you're way nicer than me. And (laughs) I'm working in the church office. I should be sort of helping you to a cup of tea. You're helping me to a cup of tea. But it's this platform where people are beginning to make their way towards Jesus. And we share this kitchen with them, as I said. And the other day I was in there and I got chatting to this girl called Leanne, um, who a few weeks before had actually asked Simon, approached her and said, "Um, would it be okay if I came to your church asked if she can come to church. You didn't have to even ask her. She asked would it be okay if I came. She's been coming to the church for about three weeks now and the other day when I was in the kitchen to her, uh, I was in the kitchen with her. She'd seen me around but we'd not been introduced and I, I introduced myself to her and she said, well you work for KXC don't you? I said yeah. And her eyes filled with tears and she said, and this is not a she said, KXC has absolutely changed my life. And I don't know what she believes yet. I'm pretty sure she wouldn't call herself a Christian, but I can absolutely say that she's making her way towards Jesus, because somebody created a space for her to do that. Where are the spaces that we're creating for people to make their way towards Jesus? And so we've had these two movements. The woman shared her story, and the people that she shared the story with have started making their way towards Jesus. And there's this third movement that's about to come, that something absolutely classic happens next where the disciples interrupt and begin to make a hash of things as they always do. Um, I'm so glad it was them and not me at that time because if it was me, I'd be having all these stories written about me. Um, and basically, their tummies start rumbling, they realize it's lunchtime, and they suggest to Jesus that now might be a good time to have lunch. And Jesus says to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And there's this amazing, pretty comical bit of the narrative then from John where he um, paints this picture of the disciples being slightly befuddled and chatting amongst themselves, saying, I didn't see him have lunch. Did you see him have lunch? Did someone sneak him a sandwich? I do not really see when that happened. I'm not quite sure what's gone on here. And Jesus overhears them, and you can imagine, he absolutely loves them to bits. And he's cracking up for them, having a little chapel to himself, and then he goes on to explain to them what he was really meaning. And he says this, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes. Look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. And Jesus is doing what he loves to do here. He loves to take an ordinary, everyday situation and use it to teach the disciples something. And here's what I think he's trying to say. A couple of things. Firstly, remember how I offered that woman that living water. In other words, Remember how I offered her the only thing that will truly satisfy, relationship with me and the experience of my love. Well now, I want to talk to you about the only real food that satisfies. And that is in joining me in giving away what you've received. The point that Jesus is making is really simple. There are two things in this life that truly satisfy. Knowing Jesus and making him known. And if you're anything like me, you lean probably far more towards one than you do towards the other. But when we do that, it's like having something to drink, but nothing to eat. Or like having something to eat, but nothing to drink. Either way, we end up dissatisfied. Um, On the way here in the car, Iona and I were just having a a bit of a pray about today. And she, I hadn't told her that this is what I wanted to speak on. um, And she had this word about Women coming here that feel quite dissatisfied at the moment in their lives. And the sense I had as she said that was that dissatisfaction comes with not making from not making Jesus known. Maybe you know Jesus, but there's another part of you that needs to come alive in making Jesus known. The second thing I think Jesus was trying to teach the disciples here is he's using their interruption as a moment to challenge them on how comfortable they are the theologian Tom Wright writes about this passage and he asks the question, have you ever been so excited and passionate about something that you've forgotten to eat? Now I find this very difficult because I love food frankly the thought of skipping a meal is horrendous, when people talk about fasting I'm like oh, please don't talk about fasting I don't want to fast, I hate fasting um, I find it very hard to miss a meal but it's a good question to ask you know, have you ever been so sold out so passionate about something that you forget to even eat? How many of us are like that when it comes to sharing Jesus with people? I'm not sure that I am. Um, this is something that I felt really challenged over recently. I read a book um, just a, it was a couple of months ago now, which I am hugely behind the times on. So many of you in the room will have read it before and been like, catch up, that was like 10 years ago. Uh, get with the program. It's a book called The Irresistible Revolution um, by Shane Claiborne. And the book is filled with stories of how the community that he's a part of, which they've called The Simple Way, um, it's filled with stories about how they are trying to devote their lives to making Jesus known to people in the poorest parts of Philadelphia, in the United States where they live. And they live deliberately alongside broken, hurting people. And when asked to describe an average day for their community, he says, it's really difficult because every day is different. But he begins to describe the sorts of things that they get up to. And I just wanted to read this to you because it really impacted me so much. He says this. We hang out with kids and help them with homework in our living room. And we jump in open fire hydrants with them on hot summer days. We share food with folks who need it and eat the beans and rice our neighbour makes for us. Folks drop in all day to say hi, to have a safe place to cry or get some (coughs) water or a blanket. We run a community store out of our house. Neighbours can come in and fill a grocery bag with clothes for a dollar, or they can find a couch, a bed, or a refrigerator. We reclaim abandoned lots and make gardens amid the concrete wreckage around us. We plant flowers inside old TV screens and computer monitors on our roof. We see our good friends waste away from drug addiction, and on a good day, somebody is set free. We see the police scare people, And on a good day, we find an officer who will play baseball with us. We rehab abandoned houses. We try to make ugly things beautiful and to make murals. Instead of violence, we learn imagination and sharing. We hang out on the streets. We have friends in prison and on death row. We visit rich people and have them visit us. We preach, prophesy, and dream together. We give people fish. We teach them to fish. We tear down the walls that have been built up around the fish ponds. And we figure out who polluted it. And we spend our lives actively resisting everything that destroys life. Now when I read that, I felt this stirring inside of me. And I I get the same stirring when I read Acts chapter 2 and I read about the early church. I get this stirring in me and I think, I want my life to look like that. I want to be sharing Jesus with people like that do you know what stops me? My need to be comfortable. I found it really amazing that Sarah gave that word before about someone that's been called to new things, but the thing that's hard is to move out of that place of being comfortable. As I mentioned earlier, I got engaged recently and my fiancé and I have been talking a little bit about where we want to live, and in King's Cross, there are two parts of the neighbourhood. There's this beautiful... Um, part of King's Cross called Barnsbury, where are these gorgeous sort of Georgian townhouses. And the thing you need to know about me is that I'm obsessed with Country Living Magazine. Um, I know it's sad, I'm probably slightly old before my time, but I love Country Mag- Living Magazine, I love the National Trust, I love the countryside, I love gardening, I love architecture, I also love L decoration, I love interiors, and so the thought that everything in me is like Oh, I don't want to live in a Georgian townhouse. Um, but more recently, I've just been getting this little nudge, this growing sense, the other half of King's Cross, the other side of the road that kind of divides part of King's Cross, the Caledonian Road, mm-hmm. is this estate called the Benton Estate. Mm-hmm. And recently I've just been having this, nu- this nudging that maybe God wants us to live there. And I've been like, no, God, those houses are so ugly. I want to live in one of the pretty houses. I want to make my house, like something out of Country Living Magazine. And I've just been feeling this nudge, you know, that's maybe not what God's got for me. And I'm not saying it's wrong to live in in one of those beautiful houses. One of the things I love about Shane Claiborne is that he doesn't hate rich people. He's like, we hang out with rich people too. There's nothing wrong with that in one sense. But for me, I'm starting to get that inkling. I wonder whether this might be where God is calling me. But the question that comes up for me is how much of my own comfort am I willing to give up to share Jesus? You know, Jesus couldn't be clearer here. He uses this farming language of sowing and reaping that perhaps isn't that familiar to us, but would have been really familiar to his disciples. And he's essentially saying, it's the time for reaping now. The harvest is ready. In other words, the time is now. It's not the time to be waiting around. It is not the time to be letting life pass us by. It's time to act, and it's time to throw off anything that is going to slow us down when it comes to sharing Jesus with And sometimes the thing that slows us down the most is our need to be comfortable. Um, When I was praying about today, I had these two phrases that came into my mind for you. And the first was expect the unexpected. Um, And the sense was this that the other second thing was that I had this sense that there are radical women in this room. That was the word I felt God gave me. And the word radical I looked it up, it comes from the Latin radix, meaning root. So to be radical is to go back to our roots, back to what Jesus has done in us, back to what Jesus has asked of us in the first place, to know him and to make him known. And my sense was that God wants to increase a sense of expectation for what he might do in and through our lives. That he wants to use women that are in this room to do things and to reach people that they've never even dreamed never thought God would use them to reach, but it might mean needing to let go of some of the ways in which we've got too comfortable. And this leads us on to the third movement in this passage where John writes this, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed two days. And to understand the significance of this, you need to cast your mind back again to this morning when we read that first half of the chapter, and John explains how there's this racist hatred, this long-held feud between the Jews and the Samaritans, which is the reason why that woman at the well was so shocked when Jesus spoke to her, and let alone treated her with kindness and acceptance. And I made the point then that Jesus loved to do this. He loved to break down social boundaries, and he wasn't afraid of doing so. And in this encounter with the woman then, and in staying for two days with these Samaritans now, he's doing the same thing again. He's trampling over these social divides. But by doing so, he's exposing himself to all the hatred, all the disgust, all the shame that the Jews normally pointed towards the Samaritans. And this is the God that we worship, the God who took on flesh, made himself nothing, who went to the cross where he absorbed all of our shame so that we didn't have to experience it. Um, I read this story in a book recently um, which really got me thinking about this, this idea that Jesus absorbed our shame for us. Um, And it's the most wonderful book which I've become a little bit of an evangelist for. It's by a woman called Brené Brown. I don't know how many of you are familiar with her Writings. Um, she's an international speaker and researcher. She's written a couple of books, one's Daring Greatly, um, and the other one which I'm going to talk about is this book called The Gifts of Imperfection. And she researches, one of the topics that she researches into the most is the topic of shame and vulnerability. That's what she's done a lot of research into. It's amazing, amazing reading. And she talks about in this book, The Gifts of Imperfection, that for those who struggle with shame, For those who struggle with needing to be perfect all the time, one of the best things that you can do to combat this is to dance and to sing, and to do both really regularly. Um, I just thought that was totally amazing. Um, And she talks about how, because she's come to realise that there's truth in this, literally from the research that she's done, the statistics show that those who dance more and those who sing more regularly experience shame less. Because of that research, she's made a point doing that with her family. So what they do every day after dinner with her two kids and her husband, they clear the dinner table, they all go through to the kitchen for washing up time, they stick some music on in the kitchen, and that's the chance then when everybody washes up, but everybody has a boogie in the kitchen. They just go for it whilst they're washing up, the whole family gather around and they have a good old dance in the kitchen. So she's developed this as a daily practice. Um, but she tells this story, which absolutely got me when I read it, which uh, is quite funny as well, where one day um, she was going out to the shops, so it was one of those days she'd kind of been slobbing around the house all day. She hadn't really had a shower her hair was sort of scraped back a bit greasy. Um, she was in this tracksuit, she was on like the 15th cup of tea of the day, and she'd run out of the milk and she was like, oh, I need to go and get some milk. So she grabbed her daughter and she said, just come with me in the car for a minute. I'm just gonna nick into the shop, We're just gonna whiz in really, really quickly, and I'm gonna buy some milk and then we can come back home and carry on chilling out. So the two of them went off to this supermarket, they arrived at the supermarket, and she kind of tentatively paid out of the car, was aware of what she looked like, and she kind of dashed into the supermarket, dashed for the milk, grabbed the milk, and just as she was turning around, the unimaginable happened. And a woman, uh, it was the mum of one of her daughter's friends from school, was standing behind her, immaculately turned over. <laughs> looking absolutely beautiful with this basket of organic food just <laughs> displayed before her. And she just thought, well, "Oh you no, know, this is not what I wanted at all. So she felt really embarrassed and she started having this sort of polite <coughs> chit-chat, thinking, please leave me alone, I just want to run back to the car and crawl uh, under, rather and die. And she was feeling really, really embarrassed. And if it couldn't get any worse, then the un- imaginable happened. Suddenly her daughter started tugging on her shirt. Tugging on her head, going, Mummy, 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 mummy. She was like, hang on a minute, darling. hang on a minute. Mummy, mummy, mommy, mommy. mommy, mommy. She's like, what is it? What is it? it? Mum! It's the washing up song! And on the store radio <laughs> on the store radio. Washing up had come on, and her, da- her daughter was like, I am gonna go for it. So her daughter starts dancing in the middle of this supermarket. And she's giving it all her best moves, and she's doing the robot and going for it, all like this. And Brene Brown's thinking, Oh, Brown, swallow me up. I just want to die. This is so embarrassing. And this woman's looking on, thinking, What on earth is your child doing? <laughs> very strange, very peculiar. And Brene Brown talks about how she has a choice. She had a choice. <laughs> that moment, and she was aware of what the choice was. She either said to her daughter, darling, that's something you do at home, we don't do it in public, it's really embarrassing, stop being so silly, and kind of shooed her out of the supermarket as quickly as possible, and by doing so shamed her daughter, or she gritted her teeth and she joined in. <laughs> <laughs> and she was thinking, oh no, I really, really don't want to do this, and she was thinking, I can't, I can't possibly do it, I'm just gonna tell her to, you know, stop, I'll do that. Bit at home later after the washing up, she was about to say that to her daughter, and she looked down at her daughter, and her daughter was just looking up at her, doing the robot. <laughs> eyes beginning to fill with tears, and in that moment, she saw the tears coming to her daughter's eyes, and she thought, oh, What am I doing? So she put her shopping basket down, she just <laughs> jumped in the middle of the place, started doing the robot with her daughter, going for it and dancing to the washing up song right in the middle of the supermarket, and the other woman looked, looked very strange and just sort of walked off and left into to it that Moment, she felt utterly, utterly humiliated, but she didn't care. She experienced her daughter's shame so that her daughter didn't have to experience it. You know, when I read that, even when I tell it now, or oh, it just makes me, I get choked up thinking about it. It's something at the heart of that that grabs something for me because it, it asks that question. It points towards Jesus who absorbed our shame so that we didn't have to experience it. And, you know, we are made in his image. We are called to do the things that Jesus did. And the question I want to ask is, is, you know, when was the last time you experienced a sense of shame so that somebody else didn't have to? You experienced shame on someone else's behalf so that somebody else didn't have to? You know, the truth is, if we are going to be serious about sharing Jesus' love with people, it will mean experiencing shame at times. And we're just going to have to get over that. It might also mean crossing social divides. It might mean doing things that shock. It might even mean doing things that cause offense at times. But it will be a 100% worth it because of the fruit of it, because of what happens next. Which leads us to this fourth and final movement, and I want to close with this. John writes, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. The woman started with this question, could this be the Messiah? And the people that she asked the question to ended with an answer. We know that this man really is the saviour of the world. She started by sharing something of her own story and they believed because of her story but they ended by saying we don't just believe anymore because of what you said, now we've heard for ourselves. And that for me is the beauty in this story of the woman at the well. She encounters Jesus, she experiences love, his love, her life is transformed but it doesn't end there. She then takes what she's received she tells her story to anybody that's going to listen to it, which then leads to people having their own encounters with Jesus, to experience their own lives being transformed and to begin to have their own stories to tell to anybody that will listen to them. This is the story that we belong to. This is the story that we are invited into as well. You know, It's been an absolute privilege to be here today. I've absolutely loved every second of it. And and my prayer for us is that as we close here today, that we would all be women who know what it is to encounter the love of God in such a way that it just spills out of us. That we can't keep it to ourselves anymore. That we can't help but share it with anybody and everybody. And that with his help, we will know the joy as well of seeing lives transformed around us by that same love. Um, Can I pray for us? And then I'm going to hand over to Us. You'd fill us with your love in such a way that it just spills out, that we can't help ourselves. We just have.